Well, hello, Hellos Church. It's good to be with you again. And greetings also to friends and guests who are tuning in and worshiping with us on this abnormal Easter Sunday. My name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors with our faith family. As you know, this is the day each year Christians set aside to commemorate and to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And although our preference is to do so in person, it is possible for us to do so virtually as well. And that's what we're going to do. We believe Jesus is still moving even when we can't. You know, as a kid, I remember hearing a story of a man who choked on a fishbone and died. And from that point forward, I hesitated to eat fish. But what really bothered me was watching my mom eat fish. My grandpa and I would go and catch brim and perch out of a nearby lake. Then we'd come home, clean the fish, fry the fish, and just feast on them. But I would sit at the dining table watching my mom ever so closely, just sitting on pins and needles, hoping she wouldn't choke on a bone. And I think what makes these strange days we're living in all the more difficult is worrying about those we love most. Many of us are more concerned about others getting sick than perhaps ourselves. We think about our parents and grandparents, our kids and close friends. With every cough or sneeze or headache or fever, we perk up and find ourselves sitting on pins and needles just hoping the virus hasn't hit that close to home. And some of us maybe are having a hard time even going to sleep at night. But do you know what calmed my nerves as a kid? Do you know what alleviated my fears of fish bones? It was when my mom told me about the resurrected Christ. And I learned that Jesus is alive. And I learned that all who trust in him will one day be alive with him forever and always. I knew my mom trusted in Jesus, and I, I soon started trusting in Jesus. And so after that, when, when we ate fish, I, I was still on the lookout for fish bones. But I was better able to sit back in my chair. I was better able to enjoy the time I had with my family. The gift that was those times was no longer being stolen from me by fears and anxieties associated with thoughts of death. See, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It changes how we share meals with people. It changes how we spend time with people. It even changes how we respond to pandemics. Sure, we pay attention to sound and sanitary practices. We practice social distancing, but we refuse to let the moments we have with those in our households or even online, we refuse to let those moments be stolen from us by various fears and anxieties. So let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Acts chapter 17. If you are not a Christian or are unfamiliar with the Bible, please know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. And you can use that resource to find the book of Acts. And when you get there, you are looking for chapter 17, which would be a big, bold 17 on one of the pages. And when you find that, then you're looking for verse 16, which will be a, a little number next to a sentence beneath the 17. I want you to meet me there because this passage shows us how the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Specifically, it changes how we see the world around us and how we see the God above us. 
So let's begin in verse 16. When While Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Now, Paul is a missionary traveling the world, telling everyone uh, about Jesus, letting them know that Christ was crucified and risen. And he's now making the most of the downtime he has and in this historic Greek city as he waits for his friends to join him there. And then it says, as he was waiting for them, that he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, Athens was a beautiful city. The citizens there had developed the first democracy. They boasted important figures in just about every influential category of Western civilization. From great playwrights to historians, from medical innovators to philosophers, many artists called Athens home. There was a statue of Zeus crafted by a man named Phidias, which was considered the world, one of the world's greatest wonders. And so at the time of Paul's arrival, Athens was considered the cultural and intellectual center of the whole Roman Empire. And there was much there for Paul to see and stand in awe of, but the resurrection changes how we see the world around us. And when the eyes of our faith are locked on the risen Christ, then the very best that this world has to offer is exposed for what it actually is. That all earthly glories are but cheap substitutes of the glory for which we were created. The very best this world has to offer in every arena, ranging from academics to the arts, from architecture to athletics, it all pales in comparison with the glory of the risen Jesus. And so what struck Paul in this moment wasn't the beauty of Athens, but its brokenness. For him, its beauty represented people's failed attempts of grabbing hold of God. And this deeply distressed him, for he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, an idol is any aspect of creation, whether it be something spiritual or physical, ideological or imaginative, any aspect of creation that's been inserted into the place of God in our lives. It is anything that rivals our allegiance to and our affections for the God who made us and sent Jesus to rescue us. They are manufactured marvels, and Athens was full of them. The phrase full of idols carries this idea that the city streets were smothered in idols. It's like how I have ordered hash browns the few times I've gone to the Waffle House. Now, don't judge me, but I would order my hash browns and I'd get them smothered, covered, diced, capped, peppered. So much was put on top of the hash browns that you couldn't even see the potatoes on the plate. Well, all that God created and intended Athens for could not be seen because the city and its people was covered and smothered by idols. And it is idolatry, this replacement of God in our lives that energizes all the sin and immorality of our lives. Martin Luther once said that if a person gets the first commandment right, that is, if a person lets God be God, then obedience to all the other commandments will fall in line. But when we don't get the first one right, our lives aren't right. 
Rather than letting God be God, we enlist cheap substitutes from sex, money, success, beauty, physical fitness, sports, you name it. We are not able to enjoy good aspects of God's creation because we become enslaved to them. They become ends in and of themselves. No wonder our lives are fraught with various fears and anxieties because those things can easily be taken away from us. And if this pandemic teaches us anything, it is that nothing in this world is capable of saving us from this world. Any worship directed at any aspect of creation is wasted. This is a reason why in crises we tend to see a rise in suicides. When we are cut off from what we've been drawing life from for so long apart from Christ, we find we've got nowhere else to go. And and that's why people jumped off buildings during the Great Depression. And that's why some people are tempted to do the same thing during this pandemic. And so the resurrection of Jesus makes us aware of these realities. So when we look at the world around us, our hearts grow deeply distressed, or at least they should. Being deeply moved by what he saw, Paul then moved towards the needs around him. Verse 17, it says he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. You see, the resurrection changes how we see the world around us because the resurrection determines our our worldview. And every person on the planet has a worldview, whether it be one anchored in religious convictions or secular beliefs. Everyone sees the world a certain way. In fact, much of life is spent trying to make sense of the world around us. Matters pertaining to meaning, morality, history, and the human story. Where do we come from? Where are we going? What makes our moments matter? Worldviews are what uh, address all these most important concerns. And here in this moment, Paul brings the worldview of the resurrection to bear on every place he went, Jewish synagogues, marketplaces, and the academy and political hub of the city. You see, apart from the resurrection of Jesus, every worldview, no matter where it operates, is either incomplete or in error. Paul went to the synagogue because their worldview was incomplete. They did not know that the Messiah's name was Jesus, that he had been crucified for their sins and rose from the grave in fulfillment of God's promises. They knew about God, they knew about sin, but they didn't know about the Savior. 
And so Paul steps in to complete their worldview, saying, look, Jesus is alive, which means God accepted his death on the cross as the full atonement for our sins. And then he stepped into the marketplace and he brought the resurrection to bear there as well. Perhaps he talked about how the resurrection of Jesus provides us with hope. Maybe he said, whatever you are shopping for now to make your life complete or to make your life satisfying, I want you to know that Jesus is alive. And he intends to complete your life story. He intends to satisfy your soul now and forever. And then Paul steps into the academy in the political arena and he confronts worldviews there as well. It says he addresses the Epicureans and the Stoics. These, now these group of influencers, they accounted for the prevailing worldviews operating in Athens. The resurrection of Jesus confronted and contradicted the errors of both. And interestingly, these two philosophies continue to influence how people see the world today. Maybe even some of you. You see, the Epicureans were indifferent to the gods. They viewed the gods as being too removed to be objects of concern, so they didn't even think about the gods. This gave birth to a lot of agnostic, secular forms of thinking that continue circulating today. But then the Stoics, many of them were pantheists. They argued for the unity of humanity and kinship with the divine. They would say we are all one, we are all connected, and there is no discernible difference between creation and the creator. My, na- my new neighbor in Seattle loves the earth. She loves gardening. She loves the natural process of things, and that's a good thing. But it seems she's turned that good thing into a God thing. We have this beautiful eight-foot green hedge separating our yards. And the first time I interacted with her, she shared all the ideas she had for the whole space. She didn't see it as two separate yards. She, she said she loves how Mother Earth connects us all. I remember thinking to myself, yeah, but I, I pay property taxes on this portion of the earth. You know, John Stott once said, to, uh, to oversimplify, it was, it was characteristic of Epicureans to emphasize chance, escape, and the enjoyment of pleasure, and of the Stoics to emphasize fatalism, submission, and the endurance of pain. In other words, one group tended to say, if it feels good, do it. There are no consequences. While the other group said, well, just grin and bear it. There's nothing you can do about it anyway. So both worldviews were quite hopeless and both worldviews were quite meaningless. Does any of that sound familiar? Do you hear how incongruent with the worldview that centers on the resurrection of Jesus, do you hear how incongruent those perspectives are with Jesus? Well, if not, let's listen carefully to what Paul says at the Areopagus, beginning in verse 22. It says, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship. I even found an altar on which it was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he made every nationality to live under the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Well, since we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus changes how we see the world around us by changing how we see the God above us. The God above us is our creator, and he is not to be confused with any aspect of creation. He made the world and everything in it. Stoics and many Seattleites will say that, that God is in everything you see and touch, from every person to every plant, from every rock to every rat, that no matter what you worship, you are worshiping the divine. But God does not live in shrines. His divine nature is not like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. No, the God above us is our creator, and he is not to be confused with any aspect of creation. But the God above us is also our ruler, and he has not removed himself from the affairs of creation. Paul says, the creator is also Lord of heaven and earth. So contrary to the Epicureans, as well as many agnostics today who think that God is indifferent to what happens in the world, or that he is indifferent about what goes on in our lives, Paul assures us, no, God has not removed himself from creation. History is not aimless. History is his story. He rules all things with, with purpose and passion. That there is purpose for when and where we are born. There is purpose for the boundaries God has placed on our lives, whether they be broad or narrow. That includes the narrow borders we are currently living in. Let's not think the pandemic is happening because the Lord of heaven and earth has lost control. No, the God above us is our ruler. He has not removed himself from the affairs of creation. But then the God above us is, is independent from us. This means that God doesn't need you or I for anything. Paul says that God is not served by human hands as though he needs anything. That he's the one who gives life and breath and all things. That we are dependent upon him. He is not dependent upon us or anything else. He doesn't need oxygen. He doesn't need sleep. He doesn't need food. This makes God utterly different from you and I. And such 
self-sufficiency should make us both humble and hopeful. In humility, we declare that God is God and we are not. In hope, we recognize that because God doesn't need us, then he must actually want us. You see, if God needed us, then we could never be certain that he loved us. You know, I did not marry my wife, Kim, because I needed her. I married my wife, Kim, because I wanted her. If I needed her, do you realize how much pressure she would feel in our marriage and in our relationship? She wouldn't know if I actually loved her for her or simply for the things that she could do for me. No, God not needing us is a great truth to sink into our hearts because that means he actually wants us. He loves us. And because God loves us, he has drawn near to us in creation. Verse 27, he he did all these things, creation and his rule or providence. He does all of this so that people might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he is not far from each one of us. A scholar by the name of James Boyce says that the word used here for reach out is the word that the Greek poet Homer used in the well-known story of the Cyclops. The one-eyed giant captured Odysseus and, and his men, but Odysseus got the Cyclops drunk and blinded him with a sharp stake. And though Odysseus wanted to get out of the cave and find his men, doing so was hard because the Cyclops was groping around to find and kill the hero. Of course, he was unsuccessful, but but in using this word, drawing upon this image, it's as though Paul is saying, in our idolatry, we are as unseeing as the blinded Cyclops. We sense God is there, and so we're groping for him in creation, but we can't quite get a hold of him. But God knows this about us, which is why he did not depend upon creation to do the work of redemption. For that, he sent forth his son. God himself stepped into the world in the person of Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That he is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Though we've been grasping For God in creation, God in Christ has come and grabbed hold of us. And so Paul goes on to share that that we are God's offspring. And he quotes some Greek poets 
as he does so, reminding people that we were created in the image of God. That means we were designed to uniquely reflect God's glory throughout the earth. But we've moved out of position. And we're not doing that anymore. You see, the moon only reflects the light of the sun because of where it's positioned in relation to the sun. And we are only able to be who we were created to be when we are in the right position. But in our idolatry, we've abandoned our position before God. We've turned our backs on Him and elevated aspects of creation above Him, both bad things and good things. But the God above us is our Redeemer. And He will renew all of creation. Hence why, after Jesus was crucified, he was soon risen. God raised Jesus from the dead as the firstborn, so to speak, as the first fruits of the new heavens and the new earth. He rose Jesus from the dead so that when we look at the resurrected Jesus, we see our future. Just as he was raised, you and I, who are trusting in Christ, who are positioned in Christ, we too shall be raised and renewed. One day we will be given recreated, glorified bodies that are untainted by sin, sickness, suffering, or death. And in these bodies we will enjoy the company of Jesus and all who are found in him forever and ever. And it is that reality which changes everything, the worldview of the resurrected Christ, that the resurrected resurrected Christ gives us may be, it, it, it may be summarized like this. God created us for himself. Idolatry separates us from himself. But God in Christ came as himself to live, to die, and rise again, to reconcile us back to himself and renew all things for himself. And the response we give to this reality is one of repentance. We admit that we have sinned against God. We've tried to find life apart from God in a myriad of ways. We confess that to Jesus, asking for the forgiveness that he freely gives. We can then be at peace as we wait for the day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. That is Jesus, the crucified and risen Christ. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It changes how we see the world around us and it changes how we see the God above us and until we see things in the light of what this day represents we are flying blind which is a dangerous way to fly as I was preparing to share this message with you I I heard loud bangs on the second floor window of the room I was in I looked and saw three or four bluebirds flying headstrong into the glass they failed to see I thought one hit would be a warning to them and they'd learn and stop. But they repeated to fly into the window over and over and over again. I tried to keep them from the danger by banging on the other side of the glass. And they flew away for a moment, but a few minutes later they came back and continued to hit the glass. And I thought to myself, it's just a matter of time. 
It's just a matter of time before they destroy themselves. Well, friends, if we choose to close our eyes and ignore the reality of the crucified and risen Christ, then it's just a matter of time before we destroy ourselves. God's righteous judgment will fall upon us. So rather than stubbornly insisting to go our own way, let's respond to the resurrection with repentance and faith. God is ready and willing to rescue us from the dangers associated with willfully flying blind. Now in Paul's story and in this passage, not everyone responded with repentance to what he said. Some ridiculed Paul. They ridiculed him for speaking such a foreign message. Others expressed interest and wanted to hear more, which was a good move. It was a move in the right direction. But then some did repent and believe. We're told at the end of the passage about Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and and others. And what I want to say to you now is that if you find yourself repenting and believing in the crucified and resurrected Jesus, then like them, identify yourselves. Identify yourselves with the company of the redeemed. Become a part of God's reconciled people in the church. Become a part of a faith family. Share your name and your story. Let yourself be known. If you're in Seattle and and you're looking for a faith family because maybe you've, you've come to faith in Jesus now, let me encourage you to email me, andrew at hallowschurch.org, and, and let me help you discover all the wonderful ways that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Let me and let our, let our faith family serve you in helping you see the world around you differently and to grow as you start seeing the God above you differently too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you that his resurrection changes everything for us. I pray that you would help us to live and to see all things in the light of that. Help us to see the world around us in light of the resurrection. Help us to see you above us in light of the resurrection. God, fill our hearts with hope. Fill our hearts with peace. Protect our hearts from the onslaught of fear and anxiety associated with all the thoughts and circumstances that we may find ourselves in at this time. God, let the resurrection of Jesus push all of that out. Let the resurrection of Jesus fill us with hope and life and an indestructible joy. God, we love you and we pray for all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Easter, everyone. Until next time.